Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Uh, good afternoon everyone, um, or, or evening. Thank you very much for, for coming along. Um, it's um, uh, um, my great pleasure to, to introduce you all to, uh, this evening to Professor John Daly from the Grattan Institute, the Chief Executive of the Grattan Institute. To present to us the topic is, is uh, called City Limits, the Urbanisation Challenge. So before and Sorry if I didn't introduce myself, I'm, I'm Chris Parker, the Chief Economist of Auckland Council. So before I uh, introduce John and, and outline uh, what he'll be talking about today, I just wanted to thank and acknowledge our sponsors. I'd like to thank our event partners for this evening. That's NZIER, the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research, for working in partnership with us today to bring John to New Zealand and, and to us tonight. I'd like to thank our project our partner sponsors, Razine and Jib. I'd like to thank our program supporters. That's Brookfield's Lawyers, Boffa Miskell, Architectural Designers New Zealand, Emar Cagney, the New Zealand Institute of Architects, the New Zealand Planning Institute, and the New Zealand Green Building Council. So uh, about John Daly. He is the inaugural Chief Executive of the Grattan Institute, which provides independent, rigorous and practical solutions to Australia's most pressing public policy issues. The current programs of Grattan Institute focus on productivity growth, cities, school education, tertiary education, energy and health. The Grattan Institute undertakes innovative research. For instance, they pioneered the research on the housing we'd choose, which was replicated recently by the Auckland Council Research and Evaluation Team. John's work at Grattan Institute has focused on economic and budgetary reform. He is particularly interested in government pri prioritisation. His other interests include analysing the situations in which government intervention is justified and the limits to government. He has 25 years experience spanning policy, academic, government and corporate roles. He has worked for the Victorian Department of Premier and Cabinet, McKinsey & Co and ANZ where he was Managing Director of the online stockbroker eTrade Australia. John completed a Bachelor of Laws with Honours and a Bachelor of Science at the University of Melbourne in 1989 and a Doctorate in Public Law at the University of Oxford in 1999. For the topic tonight, John is going to present about, uh, talk to us about Australian economies and how cities are changing. Despite mining and agricultural booms, economic activity is gravitating towards big cities and their centres. Earlier this year, the Grattan Institute published a new book called City Limits, which was the culmination of a five-year research programme on Australian cities. It exposed the great divide in these cities with employment growth in the, in the city centres, but a dysfunctional housing market. Not enough houses were being built in these areas. The book addresses how to fix these problems. Now, when I read the book, I saw many parallels with Auckland. And what struck me about the book was, was the equal balance and measure applied to issues appealing to, the, to our heads and appealing to our hearts. And I think that's a win-win, good way to develop public policy and to win hearts and minds. I'm hoping that John's presentation will give us all some ideas for becoming the world's most livable city and addressing these issues. Thank you. Welcome, John. Well, thank you.
you very much, uh, everyone, for coming. Uh, thank you to the Auckland Council for organising tonight and, of course, to the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research uh, who have made uh, tonight possible. Um, as Chris indicated, uh, I'd like to talk about um, uh, what's happening in Australia. I don't come here pretending to know anything material about Auckland. I'll leave you to draw your own parallels. Uh, but my suspicion from the discussions I've had today already are that there are any number of parallels. Uh, and I guess one of the core messages that I've got is when you start to see these things happening around the world, not just in your own city, it makes you think about, well, what are the structural things that are going on here? And therefore, what are the things that I'm going to have to simply accept? And then, well, what are the other things that I might be able to change uh, so that we can make uh, Auckland, uh, as a Melbourneian, the second most livable city uh, in the world? Um, so, the four themes I want to cover today are, firstly, Australia's economy, and, and as I'll suggest, this is true around the world, is increasingly dominated by services as opposed to manufactured goods uh, or, or primary production. So dominated by services and services produced in cities, and I might add, and uh, increasingly in the centre of cities. Secondly, however, Australian cities are nearing their limits in a whole series of different ways that I'll talk about. Uh, thirdly, um, that um, if we are going to make the most of these opportunities uh, and deal with the challenges, then we need to adjust to the changing patterns that we see in our economies, particularly around planning policy. Uh, and as somebody has pointed out to me today, let me assure you, when I talk about planning policy, uh, obviously planners to some extent are involved in planning policy, but the reality is that the major driver of planning policy is essentially what we as citizens in a democracy decide that our elected representatives should do. Uh, ultimately, planning policy is highly political uh, and is a consequence of political decisions, uh, obviously, hopefully, influenced by those who are in the planning business. Uh, and then finally, there's a tax dimension to this, um, uh, possibly even more of an issue in Australia than it is here, but the similar kind of drivers apply. So, what's the story? Firstly, in terms of the overall economic story, some things that we can observe around the world, and particularly in Australia. Firstly, that services are growing a lot faster than other sectors. Secondly, that big cities now are dominating, certainly the Australian economy, less so in, in New Zealand, and I'll talk about that. And thirdly, that more jobs are being concentrated towards the centre of the cities rather than the edge. So let's have a look at that. This is looking at consumption in Australia. Uh, and we've gone from a world in which we used to spend about 40% of our wallet on services, uh, if we go back uh, 50 years, uh, to nowadays spending more like about 65% of our wallet on services. And obviously manufactured goods is more or less the reverse. Uh, those are very frighteningly straight lines if you are in the manufacturing business. Uh, it is unlikely that those trends are going to reverse. What we see across the developed world is that as people have more money to spend because of economic growth, they are tending to spend the marginal dollar on services. And some of that's about engineering services and architecture services and business services. Some of it is about health. Some of it is about education. But either way, we are spending an increasing proportion of the dollars in our pockets uh, and the dollars in our government pockets on services. So that's what we are consuming. 
If we then think about, well, what are we producing? Where are people working? Uh, even more starkly, you can see in Australia the enormous shift from services, sorry, from manufacturing to services. And we've seen, we've gone from having about 40% of the population producing services to having about 80% of the population producing services. Uh, mining, which of course you hear a lot about, uh, employs a grand total of about 3% of the Australian workforce. So in terms of what people do, it's not particularly material. And of course there's been a huge shift in manufacturing as it has essentially um, reduced as its, its share of the Australian economy and of course reduced its share of Australian employment. So those are the patterns. What's happening a little more globally? So this is looking at manufacturing as a percentage of the Australian economy. That's the black line here on the left. Manufacturing used to be, uh, back in 1970, about 25% of what Australia produced. Nowadays, it's only about 10%. And as you can see, that is in line with the global average, or median more accurately, which has also declined over that period, although not as quickly as Australia. And of course, what is going on there is that the world of manufacturing has globalised. Australia is not a particularly obvious place to set up a globalised manufacturer. Uh, and so we have seen manufacturing decline in Australia even faster than uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, I suspect that the patterns are somewhat similar in New Zealand. Back here, when things were less globalised, Australia produced more of the manufactured goods that were consumed in Australia. Today, a much greater percentage of them are imported. Uh, and so the overall story here is we have an economy that is shifting from being quite materially about manufacturing, both in terms of what gets produced and what people do, to one which is dominated by service industries. So that's the story. Now what's happening in terms of the geography is very interesting. This is looking at the percentage of the Australian economy, which back in 2011, which is the last census, um, was about 1.2 trillion. Today it's a bit over 1.6. Now of that 1.2 trillion, uh, if we look at the New South Wales economy, that was uh, pushing up towards 380 billion. And of that 380 billion, about 75% was produced in Sydney. The remainder was produced uh, in a series of regional centres and in regional uh, New South Wales. Uh, the story is even more stark in Victoria. Uh, where something like 80% of the state's economic production is produced in Melbourne and only 20% in the rest of the state. Um, now these, and these figures in fact probably understate the importance of these capital cities. Um, in Victoria for example, uh, we have large cities um, in uh, Geelong, Ballarat and Bendigo. They're all around about 200,000 people. They're within an hour and a half's drive of Melbourne. They're growing reasonably quickly and their economic links to Melbourne are quite clear. If you look on the other hand at cities that are further out, places like Swan Hill, um, Echuca and so on, uh, they're not growing nearly as fast. Uh, so in an Australian economy today being either one, a very big city, or two, pretty close to a big city, has become a very crucial determinant of population growth, economic growth, and uh, many of the other things we care about. And then if you take the big step back from this graph, one of the things you will observe is that about 70% of the Australian economy is now our five large cities. So Australia has become one of the most urbanised cities in the world. To compare this to New Zealand, um, Auckland of course far and away the largest city, and about a third of the economy. So that would be down here uh, by comparison about the same size 
roughly speaking, um, uh, as uh, well, it's about the, the, the New Zealand economy about the same size as the Victorian economy, uh, and Auckland would be kind of about here, uh, and then the rest of New Zealand would be here. So that's the shape we see for the Australian economy. Shift to services and a shift to very large cities. Um, and by very large cities, um, Melbourne and Sydney, both nowadays around about four and a half million people, a bit more. That makes both of them the second largest city um, uh, in France and Germany combined. Uh, so the only city in France and Germany larger than Melbourne and Sydney is Paris. Uh, indeed, um, Brisbane and Perth are larger than pretty much everything except one city in Germany. So these are large cities by global comparisons, and indeed Auckland would be a very large city in European terms. So this is then looking at these cities uh, today, uh, and uh, as estimated in 2031, I know there's a wee bit of um, argy-bargy about what that number might be in Auckland, but let's run with this as a reasonable estimate for the purposes of today. Uh, and as you can see, within the next 15 years, Auckland will be about the same size as Perth today. Uh, it will go from being a little bit bigger than Adelaide to quite materially bigger than Adelaide. Adelaide is not growing nearly as fast as the Australian, other Australian cities, essentially because economic activity is getting dragged by the gravitational force of Melbourne away from Adelaide to Melbourne. Uh, and it's happening across a whole series of industries. So that's the context. Now, if we look at what's happening in the Australian cities, and what I'm going to do today is illustrate this talk um, with examples from all of the Australian cities, but if there's a particular Australian city you are fascinated by, then all of it is on the Grattan website um, uh, with the relevant um, report. Uh, and um, if you are, please take my word for it that these patterns in fact hold across the Australian cities, but if you'd like to go and check, um, please do. So if we look at Melbourne, as I said, about 80% of the Victorian economy, um, where is the economic activity in Melbourne? And the answer is, let's go back here. So the Victorian economy uh, is roughly speaking um, about $250 billion. Of that $250 billion, about $40 billion is the CBD. For those of you who've been to Melbourne, it's not that big. Um, it's about uh, a kilometre square. Uh, and that is $40 billion, so pushing on for about 20% of the total uh, Victorian economy. Indeed, Sydney and um, uh, Vic, uh, Melbourne CBDs are about 20%, uh, not quite, but almost 20% of the entire Australian economy. And then, as you can see, a series of areas um, clustered around the city which are material in the scheme of things, uh, and then uh, it drops away quite quickly. The only other things that are really big um, are an area around Dandenong, which is an old manufacturing centre, um, which is transforming, uh, and it's not quite on this graph, but essentially an area around the um, airport, um, airports, of course, being the ports um, of today's society. So economic activity is not only concentrating in big cities, but concentrating in the centre of those cities. Another way of looking at that is to look at productivity per person. So this, of course, looks at total economic production. This looks, however, at economic productivity per person. Now we're in Sydney, um, and as you can see, relatively high productivity around the harbour, uh, and in this kind of area that's just north of the harbour, um, much lower rates of productivity per person once you get outside of this inner ring of Sydney, and of course Sydney in fact, in fact goes all the way out here, or sort of there and a long way down here and a long way up there. Um, so um, economic activity very unevenly distributed. 
Uh, and it's that unevenness of distribution that then has a whole series uh, of other consequences. So let's talk about those. This divide that we identified in city limits uh, in terms of how our cities are structured. Um, so the first thing that you note is that um, this divide is increasing. If we look at all of the jobs created in the big five Australian cities, uh, between the two last censuses, 2006 to 2011, more than half of the jobs were created in the CBD and the 10 kilometres around it. More than half. Uh, and as you can see, that's here. Um, on the other hand, more than half of the new housing was created more than 20 kilometres from the CBD. So by definition, a reasonable number of these jobs were filled by people who were either commuting from here or from here. Uh, in fact, the pattern is quite a lot of people commuting from here to there and then people from here commuting to the middle. Relatively speaking, not that many people commuting from the edge of our cities into the centre. It's now just too far for most people living in Melbourne and Sydney to live on the edge and make it all the way to the CBD and back every single day. Uh, and in terms of then the opportunities, obviously far more opportunities for those people lucky enough to live in the CBD or the 10 kilometres around it. So that's the shape. Now one of the things I would emphasise about this is what we are seeing here is, what are, is, the, is the flow of economic water. What happens in an economy like Australia, even when there's a big mining boom on answer, people consume more of their wallet on services, more of those services are produced. They are by and large produced in really large capital cities and by and large an increasing number of the jobs are focused in the centre of the cities. This growth at the centre of our big five cities is not a consequence of active government policy in Australia trying to push employers into the centre. In fact, if anything, the reverse. Nor is it a consequence of the land in the centre being so much cheaper than the land elsewhere. In fact, exactly the reverse. It is a consequence of the fact that it really matters that you are near the centre for many of these services jobs. Um, a lovely example that we talk about in um, City Limits is there's a, a substantial engineering firm, some of you may know it, called, used to be called SKM, now called Jacobs, employed several thousand people in a suburb of Melbourne called Hawthorne, maybe about eight kilometres from the city centre. Very nice um, uh, set of offices they had, uh, surrounded by parkland, all very lovely and they moved all of those 2,000 people into the CBD of Melbourne and I cannot imagine it was because the rent was cheap. Because even for an engineering firm, an international engineering firm which spends its time basically designing um, roads and desal plants and other pieces of large infrastructure, not only for Australian governments but for a large number of international um, uh, uh, countries, um, it mattered that they were in Collins Street as opposed to eight kilometres away from the centre of the city. Now one of the things about this of course is that it seems a bit surprising. We've all been told that communications technology is getting better. Surely that means it's so much easier to talk to people. That means that it doesn't matter where we are, doesn't it? And the answer is well, no. The one thing we should take away from the history of 120 years worth of communications technology improving beyond all imagination since we invented the telegraph is that the effect, the primary effect of communications technology in terms of geography is that it concentrates activity. It's wildly counterintuitive, but that's how it works. Now what might be going on there? Well, one of the ways to illustrate this is um, uh, to understand what happens when people write medical papers. So Harvard, in its infinite wisdom, um, 
uh, decided to do a study of all of the papers, medical articles that have been written over a period by authors where at least one of the authors was at Harvard. Uh, and they looked at where the physical location of the first named author of the paper, i.e. the God Professor, and the last named author of the paper, i.e. the poor bunny who did the real work. Um, and they worked out where they sat. Now, of course, sometimes they sat in the same building, sometimes on different floors, sometimes they were in adjacent buildings, sometimes they were on the opposite side of the um, Harvard campus, sometimes one of the authors was at MIT, some of the time the other author was in Stanford, some of the time they were at Oxford, some of the time they were somewhere you know, um, in, uh, in deepest, darkest, darkest Germany. But um, what they could do was then look at what is the relationship between the geographic proximity of the authors and the quality of the paper as defined by how often it got cited, which is not a perfect definition of quality, but it's a reasonable proxy. And so they could see this beautiful relationship that emerged between geography and uh, uh, how often the paper got cited, and it turned out that the optimal distance for the two authors was about eight metres. <laughs> because being really close to your co-author, it turns out, physically close really matters. Um, another way of, of understanding what might be going on here uh, is a lovely study that got done in France. They took people who were working in similar industries, so they're controlling for industry, and they looked at them whether they were in Paris or whether they were in Lyon, which of course is a reasonably large regional uh, um, a French city, uh, a smaller town or a you know, very, very small um, uh, firm in a rural area. Uh, they controlled for firm size, uh, and then they looked at um, how those people communicated. Uh, and it turned out that it didn't matter where your firm was located, you communicated with other people in your firm about the same amount of time in person, on the phone, through the internet. If on the other hand you were located in a big city and you were communicating with people outside of your firm, it turned out that you tended to communicate with them a lot more often, by all modes of communication. So what happens is that when you're in regional areas, you wind up with much less communication, much less contact with people from outside of your firm. Why is it that SKM wanted to be on Collins Street? It wasn't so that their staff talked to each other more, although that there was doubtless hope, hope for. It was so that their staff talked to, the talked to the staff of other firms more often. That's the economic driver that's going on here. And of course, when you're in the manufacturing business, that doesn't matter so much. But when you're in the services business, that interaction between different firms, often at a very personal level, turns out to matter a huge amount. That's what's driving the economic water, that's what's creating the slope that means we're seeing so much economic activity moving into big cities and, and quite often into their centres. Now, that concentration of activity has some, has some implications. The first is some very stark patterns in terms of education levels and also um, uh, earnings levels. Uh, whichever city you pick in Australia, this one happens to be Brisbane, you get these beautiful concentric rings which are only messed up by the presence of water. Um, uh, and I dare say that would happen too in Auckland. Uh, basically, uh, highly educated, high earning income people um, in the centre. And then basically this radial dartboard um, as you go out from there. Uh, and if you look here, you get the kind of larger scale map of, of Brisbane and of course the effect gets even bigger as you move uh, even further away from the centre of Brisbane. So basically the high educated, high income people wind up towards the centre and then it drifts out from there. 
Um, you can um, do the inverse of this chart. Uh, sorry, I'll go back one. You can do the inverse of this chart uh, and, and chart um, highest uh, level of um, vocational education, so people who haven't done university but have been through some kind of vocational education, and it's the perfect reverse. Basically, far more people with vocational education on the outside, far fewer on the inside. Uh, and as I said, one of the things that emerges when you start doing travel analysis, certainly uh, in the Australian cities, is that you discover the people who work here will tend to work in the area, roughly speaking, um, about um, uh, two or three suburbs around where they are. Relatively speaking, very few work in the centre. On the other hand, if you take these middle suburbs, a few of them head further out, but most of them head further in. Uh, and quite a large number working in the CBD. So that's that pattern. Um, then, of course, there's an accessibility pattern. The bottom line is that if you live in the centre of Brisbane, bearing in mind that Brisbane is not that much bigger than uh, Auckland today, um, you can reach most of the jobs, more than 50% of the jobs, by car within an hour's trip. Sorry, within 45 minutes' trip. Um, uh, accessibility to jobs not too bad by car. Uh, and this is obviously thinking about it at peak hour. Uh, not when it's raining really hard, um, but uh, definitely under a normal peak hour. Uh, on the other hand, Sydney is a much less happy story. Um, so people who are lucky enough to live in the centre of the city, that's the bit that kind of gets ranked by The Economist as one of the more livable cities in the world, they can reach a very large number of the jobs in Sydney. But as you head out into the western suburbs, and there is a lot of them for anyone who has ever driven it, um, you see those people can reach relatively few of the jobs in Sydney. So Sydney has essentially become two cities, um, a rich, prosperous, high access to jobs centre and a less rich, less prosperous, prosperous by and large, much less access to jobs uh, out on the edge. Uh, and this is what I threaten Brisbane with, that if they don't grow up properly, they will turn into Sydney uh, and question mark about whether they want to do it. It's also an issue for Auckland. Auckland, of course, has a bunch of geographic disadvantages, not least the fact that you've got water on two sides rather than one, which I guess makes you, you know, by definition, a much more livable city than Sydney. But it does create a series of obvious geographic issues when you are thinking about the, the geography of uh, Auckland's economy. Uh, and it does mean that the challenge of um, people living on the edge and how many jobs will they really have access to is something which Auckland is clearly starting to confront as we speak. Um, when you are a city of a million people, none of this stuff matters very much. As you can see from the Brisbane chart, um, you can, and it's even more clear when you go to Adelaide, um, that there is no outer suburb of, of Adelaide which is a long way from anywhere. On the other hand, as you get bigger than about a million people, you start to run into real issues. Um, people living on the fringe start to have much less access to jobs. Um, so that's the car story. Of course, there's also a public transport story. Inherently, public transport gets you to far fewer of the jobs. By car, you can get from here to there. By public transport, getting from here to there is really hard work. Um, Melbourne has probably the best um, public transport system in Australia. And even then, as you can see, people lucky enough to live in the middle, uh, middle suburbs of the city, pretty good access to jobs by public transport. As soon as you get further out than that, it all gets um, pretty difficult by public transport. So that's the story on public transport. Um, what are the social outcomes of this? One of the really um, important social outcomes, quite apart from the fact that you 
once you wind up on the edge, it's hard to get a high-paying job because A, you can't get to many of them and B, it's really going to be a long way, is we see a very big difference in female workforce participation. Uh, so in the centre of Sydney, the difference between male and female workforce participation is pretty small. As you go out to the western suburbs, however, the difference between male and female workforce participation tends to be a great deal larger. Now part of this no doubt is because there are relatively few um, old retired people out here. By definition they kind of live here because that's where they bought 30 or 40 years ago. But even so, even when you control for that, it's still clear that there's a very big participation difference um, between inner and outer cities uh, in Australia. And that presumably is because, and we, we tell the story um, of a, a woman in uh, city limits uh, who was a um, highly skilled medical researcher, worked in um, Parkville, uh, for those of you who don't know Melbourne quite, oops, Melbourne quite so well, um, that's uh, just north of the city about here, um, very good access by public transport, um, uh, it's the, the home of the so-called Parkville Strip, it's where a lot of the medical research goes on, attached to Melbourne University, um, one way or another. Um, she used to work there, they decided to move out because they couldn't afford to buy a house anywhere um, closer, they moved out here um, to an area near Werribee. Um, uh, she tried to, obviously her husband was working as well, they had kids in childcare, uh, and the business of trying to get from work to childcare and back again, particularly if anything went wrong, was just got all too hard. Uh, not surprisingly, there are not a lot of jobs for highly specialised medical researchers in Werribee, despite the best efforts of the Wyndham City Council, um, and uh, consequently she wound up not working. Highly skilled, um, highly trained, to be blunt, a pretty expensive training, uh, and making an entirely understandable decision not to work given the geography of the city. Uh, and that is, I suspect, what lies behind the kind of patterns we see here in terms of much lower rates of female workforce participation uh, as you go out at the centre of the city. Um, and then the other issue that, that emerges is one around um, uh, what uh, in one of our reports was somewhat coyly named disaffected youth. Uh, in other words, young people who are not in employment, education and training. Um, uh, and as you can see, uh, this is looking at Perth, very much concentrated around the edges of Perth. By definition, they come from low um, uh, education families on, in, in general. By definition, their families are relatively uh, low levels of income. And by definition, getting to a lot of jobs is very difficult. And so not surprisingly, we see far more uh, in the way of youth unemployment in those areas. And of course, these people are much more likely um, to wind up long-term unemployed with all of the issues that go with that. So the implications of all of this are pretty obvious. Um, we wind up with people who earn um, lower incomes on average. They're much more likely to uh, be employed on a casual basis. Um, it's much harder for women. It's much um, harder for young people. It leads to longer commutes, um, which when you look at the literature are basically bad for you any way you cut it. Indeed, people systemically tend to underestimate how bad commutes will be for them when they're choosing to live in outer cities, i.e. They, they underestimate how much it will have an impact on them in terms of well-being, in terms of costs, in terms of its impact on family life, uh, in terms of its impact on health and in terms of its impact on just about everything else that we care about. Now, that of course is the story about what, if you like, as enlightened um, uh, policy wonks we might want people to do. 
Uh, as an enlightened policy wonk, you might say, well, look, given all of that, uh, it would be better if more people lived in the inner and middle rings of our city where they had more chance of access to jobs, higher incomes, and so on. But the question, of course, is, well, but what do people want to do? Maybe policy wonks want this kind of higher um, uh, concentration of people, but what people really want to do is live on the edge. Uh, and so, as Chris mentioned, um, we did a piece of work called The Housing We Choose, which essentially forced people to make trade-offs. Because, of course, if you go to people and you say, well, where would you like to live? The answer is, oh, look, you know, in a sort of like really large house about, you know, 10 minutes walk from the centre of Auckland, you know, a bit of a garden around it, you know, hot and cold running servants would be good. Um, that's what they would like, please. But, of course, that's not real life. What you have to ask them is, given constraints, how would you trade off where you live, how big your house is, and how much you pay for it? And that's what this research did. It essentially forced people to make those choices and then asked, well, how does that pan out? And what it pans out is, look, about 40% of the population would like, this is looking at Sydney, you get the same story in Melbourne and the Auckland research turned out to be pretty similar. Uh, and indeed, um, the Perth um, uh, uh, government has, uh, Western Australian government has replicated the analysis and discovered that much the same thing held in Perth. About 40% of the population in Sydney would like to live in a detached house, please, um, uh, in various locations. Uh, implicitly, therefore, about 60% would like to live in some kind of uh, semi-detached or apartment-type dwelling. Uh, and as you can see, distributed uh, various ways between inner, inner middle, outer middle um, parts of the city. Interestingly, a material number that want to live in detached, sorry, in semi-detached or, or apartments in the outer parts of our suburbs. That might seem a little bit counterintuitive, but what they're saying is, um, if someone was prepared to build me a really cheap apartment uh, in the outer suburb, I'd be very happy to buy it. Uh, but for a whole series of reasons, by and large, that kind of accommodation doesn't get built. So that's where people would like to live. What we could then do is compare, say, well, that's what people would really like. What is it that's getting built and what's the mismatch? And here's the mismatch for Sydney. Um, what we see is um, in the inner middle, so that's this kind of area here, um, about you know, 8 to 10 kilometres from the city, um, shortages of semi-detached uh, dwellings and apartments. A similar story in the outer middle zone here, um, and shortages are again out here of um, semi-detached dwellings. Uh, the obvious question is, okay, so where's there an oversupply? And the answer is um, there is effectively an oversupply of detached dwellings on the edge relative to what people would really like if they could choose. In other words, if the market produced more of this kind of semi-detached stuff, people would be very keen to buy it. And certainly my observation of the Australian market would be that any time that someone manages to get planning permission to build one of these things and builds it, it does seem to sell extremely well. Uh, and none of the developers um, much seem to go bust. So I can only assume that they're making some money on the way through. Um, so that's the story. Not only would the wonks quite like, um, from an economic productivity perspective, more people to be able to get access to those uh, rapidly increasing number of high productivity jobs in the centre. But actually, people's preferences are often um, to be able to live there if they could. Um, and then, of course, there is a housing affordability story to all of this. Um, some of this plays out in terms of um, what people can afford to buy and, more to the point, who buys it. Um, it matters because about half of all Australian assets um, are held one way or another in residential property. 
Um, when you look at what it is that people, households own in Australia, about half of it's in property, most of it, of course, in owner-occupied housing, and a material chunk in investor housing. Um, and then if we look, however, at home ownership rates, although at a top line they have been reasonably stable in Australia, by age, something very important is going on. What we've seen is a very steady decline in home ownership rates amongst younger households over a 30-year period. Now, we could explain that away and say it was because of the irresponsible and feckless youth of Australia uh, who are taking much longer to settle down, much longer to have children and all of the rest of it. And I'm not sure that that entirely worked as an explanation, but anyway, that was the explanation. But it's much harder to argue that that's true for the 35 to 44-year-olds. And of course, it's very hard to explain away for the 45 to 54-year-olds, where, as you can see, it has also been declining. Uh, and of course, if somebody has not bought a house by the time they are 45, chances are they're not going to. So we've seen this very big drop in essentially housing affordability, or at least in terms of home ownership. Um, when we cut that another way by um, income, an even more disturbing story emerges. The big falls in home ownership have been from those in low-income quintiles. So it used to be the story that people on low incomes in Australia had a pretty good chance of owning their own home. Uh, that is no longer the case. Those people on low incomes today are essentially finding it incredibly hard to get into the home market, into the um, home ownership market. But that's also true for many of the other quintiles, as you can see across the age distribution, a material change, this is a percentage point change, so it's dropped from, you know, say, 60-odd percent to 50-odd percent for some of these groups um, uh, over the last 30 years, and as you saw from the previous chart, it's a pretty straight line. So we're seeing this big shift in home ownership. What's going on here? Well, um, uh, essentially what's happening is that we are seeing um, uh, the prices of Australian housing going up very fast. Uh, you can see that in terms of the price of housing relative to incomes. Australian housing right at the moment is in fact relatively affordable in the sense that if you look at how much do you have to pay out of your pay packet to pay back the principal and interest over, say, 25 years, it's not that high relative to the last decade. It is very high if you go back any further than about 2005. Uh, but of course, the issue is that it looks reasonable at current interest rates. Globally, interest rates are at their lowest point for at least the last 5,000 years, um, according to the Bank of England. Um, so chances are going down further from here is not the most likely outcome. And of course, if interest rates go up, then housing affordability in terms of repayment <coughs> relative to um, income uh, will start to look very, very ugly uh, in Australia, and I suspect you would wind up seeing a similar story in New Zealand. So what's going on here? The short answer is, as Mark Twain once famously said, by land they aren't making it anymore. Uh, so what has happened is we're seeing these concentrations of people into cities, um, uh, a concentration of jobs into the centre of cities, Obviously, land supply is limited, and so what happens is that price goes up. That's terrific for anyone who's already bought their house. It's less than terrific for anybody who hasn't quite got there yet. That's the story. What can you do about it? Well, there's a very interesting pattern that emerges from the United States. If you lock up your land um, uh, planning rules so that you make it very difficult to redevelop things, so you make it very difficult 
to redevelop the vast numbers of detached houses that we have in the middle and inner rings of uh, in the sorry in the middle rings of Australian <coughs> suburbs, then what happens is that you don't have any increase in supply, uh, and the price goes up. Um, most of the benefits of economic growth get capitalised into those house prices and captured by the people who happen to be lucky enough to have bought there already. Um, and you get a big um, increase in the gap between rich and poor. If on the other hand, as some American cities have done, you make it relatively easy to um, redevelop land, so to take an existing block and subdivide it into five or six um, townhouses, or even perhaps sometimes turn it into a three or four storey block of flats, then you see much less in the way of house price appreciation, and you see much less of a divide between rich and poor. And so here's the rub of where a lot of this stuff is going. Given the economic patterns we are seeing, given the way that economic water is flowing for reasons that are clearly global, uh, but are probably, if anything, apply more to Australia and perhaps to New Zealand uh, than many other countries, um, if we want to promote economic productivity, i.e. the size of the pie, then ensuring that more people can live in the uh, middle rings of our cities matters a lot. But it also matters a lot to the fair go. It also matters a lot in terms of how, wealth, how that pie is distributed. Uh, because if you do uh, essentially allow more in the way of redevelopment in the middle, then you wind up with um, much less in the way of house price appreciation, much more in the way of people being able to live um, where it is that the jobs are being created. And so that, of course, has enormous implications for planning policy. As I think I stressed at the outset, planning policy is not just what planning planners do. Planning is what we, as citizens, choose. It is the most political of any area. As I hope I've also been trying to illustrate through what I've been saying tonight, it is also one of the biggest levers we have got uh, for economic um, and social prosperity. Uh, it's conventional for Australian states to say, yeah, yeah, look, we kind of run the hospitals and we run the schools, but we don't kind of really control anything that really matters in terms of the economy. That's what the national government does. That's a conventional wisdom. And, you know, certainly things like tax policy and industrial relations policy uh, and uh, welfare policy have a huge impact uh, on a society's welfare. But so does planning and transport because it matters to all of this economic geography. And indeed, one of the reasons that people haven't talked about this historically, uh, it's an interesting kind of intellectual history argument. The kind of analysis we've been talking about today, you just couldn't do it 20 years ago. It was all too hard. 10 years ago, you needed to have some very, very fancy and by and large, therefore, very expensive software and kit. Today, Grattan Institute can pay, you know, 300 bucks for the licence and run it essentially on a PC. Uh, so. Um, it's possible to see now, geographically, what's going on to our economies, and the patterns are very, very stark, as we've seen. So what can we do about it? Um, as I've been illustrating, uh, to a large extent, planning policy is what often leads to developers not building the kind of things that we might want from an economic perspective, we might want from a fair go perspective, and we can see that people want. Um, However, it is about making some much more, some much more, di some much more difficult decisions uh, in the middle ring. I wouldn't want to suggest for a moment that this stuff is politically easy. 
Indeed, the politics of it are diabolical because the people who benefit from there being no change are the people who live there already and who by and large vote for the relevant um, uh, town council or whatever it might be. Uh, and the people who uh, would benefit from change are by and large the people who don't live there yet but would like to. Uh, so it's a classic externality problem. So overall, the country would clearly be better off if there was change, uh, but it's tough to navigate the local politics. Now, ironically, of course, the creation of a super council in Auckland does make that easier. More of the winners from reform now are part of the city council, or voters for the city council, that has the authority, in effect, uh, to make the political choices. Um, that said, uh, that's also true of, uh, say, the Australian states where essentially these things reside with the other responsibility of the state governments and they haven't exactly been falling over themselves to make the tough reforms I talk about here either. And indeed a piece of work the Grattan Institute did a couple of years ago called Cities Who Decides um, looked at different political structures and looked at which cities had made the kind of choices we're talking about here tonight and the patterns were very stark. There was no pattern. So it turns out that the political structure that you have doesn't seem to make that much difference. What does make a big difference is whether or not the city, one way or another, engages in a high-level public discussion that explains the kind of things I've been talking about tonight so that they become part of the political vocabulary, so that people can see what the trade-offs are and what's at stake. If the only thing that people can see is a bunch of flats might get built next to me, thanks, but no thanks, uh, then you know, you're always going to lose the argument politically. If, on the other hand, people can see this is about the long-run economic prosperity of my city, about the long-term social prosperity of my city, about my parents or me being able to live in the kind of, or my children being able to live in the kind of house that they would like to be able to live in uh, and be able to get access to the kind of jobs they would like to have, then that is, of course, a very very different conversation. Now, I'm not going to suggest that that is a conversation that you are likely to win over the public with the first time you explain it uh, on national radio if you indeed get the chance. But it is the kind of thing that you can change over time. And certainly one of the things that as an Australian, and maybe we're kind of building this up at the moment, but we certainly look over um, uh, the Tasman Sea at the moment with envy at what appear to be a bunch of tough political calls that got, have been made by New Zealand governments over the last decade or so, a decade in which Australian governments have made relatively few tough political calls that were ultimately going to be in the nation's long-run economic interests. So I am slightly hopeful that on this one, um, New Zealand might again be able to lead the way, and if that's what it, if the best way for me to get a Victorian government to mend its ways uh, is to convince a New Zealand government to change things, uh, and then that will create, you know, politics envy in Australia. Well, you know, it's a tough gig, but someone's got to do it. Um, so there is certainly the opportunity to do something here. There's another issue, which is of course around residential tenancy. Um, in Australia, and I understand the story is quite similar in New Zealand, we have very insecure tenure. If you have a housing affordability problem and therefore by definition more people starting to rent, um, then when your typical lease terms are really short and your notice period is really short and the landlord can basically kick you out for any reason including that they don't like the colour of your jib um, and um, you're not allowed to own a pet unless the landlord for some bizarre reason says you can uh, and you're not even allowed to hang a picture without the landlord saying yes, uh, then obviously tenancy is a much less attractive option than otherwise. 
you can compare that to Europe where you have a very different story. Now, one of the reasons for this, certainly in Australia, is that land tax means that Australia has a very large number of landlords who only own one property. If you, earn more than more, one, if you own more than one property, you wind up paying much higher rates of land tax. One of the reasons why a progressive land tax is a truly stupid idea economically. Um, and secondly, um, uh, because of our negative gearing tax arrangements, um, those landlords have enormous incentives to buy those properties and turn them over quite regularly so that they stay negatively geared. Um, uh, without wanting to kind of mire you in the details of, of Australian um, tax minimisation, um, it means that we have a large number of landlords, therefore, who own one property and who turn it over quite often, and for that reason, like a world in which the tenants can be kicked out very easily. If, on the other hand, of course, you are a landlord who owns lots of properties and tends to own them for 10 or 15 or 20 years, then actually your interests are in residential tenancy being over this side of the picture. You want tenants who come in and stay there for five years, and you don't much care what they do with the walls because come the end of the tenancy in 10 years' time, you're going to be painting the place anyhow. Um, and if in the meantime they make too much of a mess of the walls, well, that's kind of the tenant's problem, not your problem. Um, so the, um, given we are seeing this shift uh, in home ownership, certainly in Australia, uh, I suspect it makes sense to have a long, hard look at what can be done on the tenancy law front as well. But it also makes sense to look at the tax policy game. Uh, in Australia, we've gone from having um, no tax on capital or taxing capital gains relative uh, to inflation to essentially giving you a 50% discount on the entirety of the capital gain. The minute we did that, as you can see, the number of landlords who are negatively geared uh, essentially went through the roof. And Australian landlords, on average, uh, or sorry, collectively today, inverted commas, lose about $8 billion a year on rent. They're obviously hoping to make that back in capital gains. Uh, and capital gains has gone from being something that maybe about half a million people did to something which is now about 1.2 million. It's come off only because interest rates have fallen so fast that people have wound up essentially positively geared by accident, uh, which is doubtless a good problem to have if you're in that situation. Um, uh, there is a myth peddled by a bunch of Australian politicians that uh, if you get rid of negative gearing, um, uh, rents will rise. Ladies and gentlemen, it is a myth for those of you who are in the financial services business. The way that you price an asset is you look at the income stream for the asset and then you price the asset as a multiple of that. Happy, 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 the person who can pay whatever they like for an asset and then charge a rent as a percentage of the asset. It doesn't work like that in real life. And consequently, all of the economic theory and indeed the practice in Australia shows that when you get rid of negative gearing and other tax lurks for housing, what happens is that rents stay exactly where they are, but prices for the assets fall. Um, we got, I'm sorry, the grey hasn't come through for some reason um, on this version of the chart, but we got rid of negative gearing in Australia between 1985 and 1987. As you can see, real rents went through the roof in Sydney. Our political class lives in Sydney, and therefore our political class is convinced that if they get rid of negative gearing, therefore rents will go up. Um, as you can see, however, uh, in the rest of the country, Melbourne, Adelaide, Perth, in fact, rents didn't go anywhere much at all. And when you look at the history of supply in Sydney, what you see is that there was a period here in which there were very few houses built in Sydney. And surprise, surprise, when supply is highly constrained, price goes up. Um, so, uh, sorry, not only was supply of new housing constrained, but there was also relatively little in the way of um, uh, rental availability, um, relatively few properties available for rent, and so obviously that fed through into rents. 
Um, in terms of what can be done about this, uh, one of the other things I've heard today is, of course, oh, well, yes, but the Auckland Council, we don't control any of the really good tax bases. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what I used to believe when I was a young and impressionable constitutional law scholar and was told that the state governments didn't control any of the really nice tax bases like income tax and corporate tax. I'm now older and wiser. State governments, and for that matter the Auckland Council, are sitting on far and away the best tax base there is, namely land taxes. Uh, there is a reason why Georgist uh, philosophy has hung around for a long time. There is a real truth at the core of it. Taxing land has almost no impact on economic activity. Uh, it is far and away the most efficient kind of tax there is. It is very cheap to collect. It is very difficult to avoid and it's progressive because if nothing else, rich people wind up paying it because it doesn't matter how many lawyers they, pay, they employ, um, they will wind up paying land tax, uh, however it's described. Uh, and as you can see, if you look at land taxes uh, and you have to include transaction taxes in Australia because that includes our very large and extremely inefficient um, stamp duties, um, they sit at about 2% of GDP. There's plenty of places you can look at uh, in which land taxes are 3%. Of course, the property, levy will, property lobby will say, yes, but property is paying its fair share, to which my response is, there is no rational level of tax for property. Indeed, the rational level of tax for property is really high. Now, politically, that's very difficult, um, but the rational level is really high. Uh, inherently, the one thing you cannot do with land is destroy it. If you don't want to pay the tax on it, you will wind up selling the property to someone who, by definition, will pay the tax on it. Obviously, what will happen is the price of the land will fall a bit, um, but nevertheless, tax will get collected. And so my suggestion to you is can land taxes in certainly Australian cities and looking at this graph, New Zealand, afford to be higher than they are at the moment? And the answer is probably yes. Uh, and of course that will, if anything, make affordability easier. It also increases the holding cost of land. Uh, and so what it does is encourage people to sell land that they're not using uh, as much as somebody else is prepared to use it for. Uh, Grattan Institute's recently uh, issued a paper on property taxes in Australia for those of you who are fascinated by that subject. Anyway, I have spoken for quite long enough. Um, uh, in terms of the overall summary, um, Australia's economy is more knowledge intensive than ever. The cities and the city centres are particularly important for that knowledge intensive, services intensive economy. Our cities are not really yet adjusting well to that. It's bad for the economy, it's bad for, the op for opportunity, and indeed it doesn't fit with what it is that people want. And we've got choices here. We can change housing policy, we can change tax policy, we can change planning policy, we can change transport policy. All of those things will be politically difficult, but the prizes are extremely large. That's the view from Australia. I'm guessing from the conversations I've heard today that there might be one or two things that are not that dissimilar uh, from Auckland, uh, and I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you. So I'm hoping, Chris, are you? Right, who would like to ask the first question? I've, been, I've done this enough times, I've one over there, thank you. I can tell you, Testing. just to your left, is it Peter? Oh, thanks, great. Thanks very much for that. 
um, presentation. It was very wide-ranging and it covered some really interesting and meaty issues and um, yeah, something for us all to think about. But there's one thing I was wanting to ask you around about the start of your presentation. Um, in Auckland, we're looking now at developing a number of metropolitan centres, or trying to. And I know, like, in Sydney, you, there's an attempt to make Parramatta a much more dynamic and larger city. So is it possible to have some kind of, like, bipolar city system, or do you think the focus is always going to be on, you know, the, the centre? Um, the so-called polycentric city. Um, one th a couple of observations. One is city planners have been really keen on this idea for a long time. They've been busy trying to promote it for a long time, and they haven't actually done that well, which does make you suggest suspect that that might not be the way that economic water tends to flow. Now, one of the things that's quite different about Sydney, as you saw from the graphs that I put up, or the, the maps that I put up, is um, Sydney is winding up developing a secondary centre in Parramatta, uh, essentially through complete lack of choice. So the people who are living that far out just physically cannot get to the CBD or anywhere within Cooley of it. And so essentially city, Sydney is starting to become almost two cities. Um, a Sydney one and a Parramatta one. Um, now, uh, is that the way you would develop it by choice? I suspect um, if you could figure out a way, and Melbourne is much more of a single centre, you'll probably get a higher productivity outcome if you do get it all into, or more of it, the marginal piece of activity, into the centre of the city. Um, but if you can't get it into the centre, then it's, you're obviously going to try and build these other centres. And they're probably going to need to be about as far out as Parramatta, because otherwise the gravitational force of the centre will essentially just suck it back in. Uh, and certainly we've seen a bit of that going on in Melbourne. As I said, we've, we've had areas in Hawthorne where um, you know, essentially the economic activity from Hawthorne has wound up being sucked back into the centre of the city. Um, so yes, you can, you can try. Um, and uh, it's certainly better than nothing at all, but I suspect if you had a real, and certainly you wouldn't want to prevent those secondary centres from developing, uh, and certainly if they are going to develop, then you want them to be well designed and well organised and all of those kind of things. Um, but uh, on the other hand, if you are trying to maximise total prosperity over the long run, uh, you want to you make it as easy as possible for things to get into the centre if that's what they're prepared to pay for. Next, please. Thank you, and then we'll go to the centre on the aisle there, thanks. Just want to raise briefly with you the whole link between housing preference uh, and uh, future urban demand and urban form. You're on, you've got a cutting edge tool, how do you see it rolling out into the future? Um, and, and shaping public, better public policy decisions. Um, well, obviously forecasting is difficult, particularly about the future. Um, uh, so, um, and of course one is always loath to look in the rear view mirror and say, well that's what will happen in the future. Um, the short answer is we don't know. On the other hand, we can say, when you see trends that have been going for 50 years, and it's kind of a pretty straight line, then you start to say, well, absent some kind of massive shock, I have to expect that this is going to keep happening. Uh, and of course when people say, ah oh, yes, the massive shock is called the internet and you know, all the rest of it and you know, broadband and, and so on, and I say to them, you know what, we've had a lot of those kind of communication shocks over the last hundred years and those straight lines have continued and in fact as we do the analysis it seems that those kind of shocks have, if anything, accelerated those trends. 
Now, I would be surprised if communications technology gets worse over the next 50 years. Uh, I'm guessing it's going to get better, and I'm guessing that if it gets better, if anything, these trends will accelerate. Uh, I'd just like you to address the contrast between the two approaches, the one that you advocate of more central planning and the other of more market. Mm. And I would instance the case that in 1984, New Zealand was bankrupted and essentially couldn't pay the interest a lot on our loans. Our lenders insisted that either they would set very high interest rates for any rollover or if we went more market to enable individuals and companies to produce more wealth, they would allow us a low interest rate. That is the approach that we adopted through the 80s and 90s, and for quite a while we managed to continue producing houses for the whole of the market. Today we're producing houses only for the top one-third of the market, High-rise apartment blocks in reinforced concrete cost twice as much per square metre as residential housing in suburbs, mainly because the energy content is higher. And if we're concerned about affordability, which I for one am, because the people that can't afford the houses are the bottom two-thirds of the market, they don't work downtown. Only 10% of our people work downtown. The other 90% are happy to get jobs in the suburbs where they live. Now you're suggesting that people like myself in, in a, of a retirement age sell up our, our properties because we get priced out of them by overtaxing uh, our land price, our land value. Where, where am I expected to go? And then again, that will maintain the high prices that have fr already frozen out the bottom two thirds of the market. They are delaying families, they are delaying getting married. We are not producing the next bunch of taxpayers. And yet we're prolonging the life of people like myself, thank heavens. Yeah. So do you really, in the light of all that, propose further intervention in the market and further consolidation downtown, despite all the market social and economic forces driving decentralisation and suburbanisation? Thank you. Um, okay, um, let me pull that apart. Um, in, in terms of there's a series of issues. One is what is the market we are talking about here? Uh, secondly, where are the jobs being created? And then thirdly, well, what will be the social impacts of the kind of things that I've been talking about? The first thing to observe is the housing market, of course, is a market. But like most markets, in fact, like all markets that have any chance of working, it is highly structured by whatever government rules are set. And the reality is we don't have anything that looks remotely like a free market uh, in terms of development. Uh, in our middle rings, it is highly controlled by planning. So I'm not suggesting that government should mandate a whole series of developments. Nothing could be further from the truth. Australia's experience, of course, is very similar to New Zealand's. We've seen a massive deregulation of the economy, and re in retrospect, that was a jolly good idea. Um, but we do have to understand that what is preventing development or um, is not um, lack of government initiative, it is rules set by government, by and large through the planning systems, that prevent people from selling land and redeveloping it. 
So if you want a uh, kind of red in tooth and claw market, you would have a planning system in which there were no constraints. You basically said, good luck, go and do whatever you like with whatever you like. Now, there are externalities when you develop land, of course, and that is why we have a planning system. Um, but it is that planning system which is, I would suggest, getting in the way of the market. Second issue you raised um, is around, and, and my suggestion is change the planning rules and then let the market rip and see what happens. Uh, my suggestion, my suspicion is you will see much more in the way of redevelopment, much more in the way of medium density created. Uh, certainly in an Australian context, as I said, my observation would be any time we let people do that, they're very keen to do it, uh, and they do it, and they sell it to people who want to buy it, uh, and they make a profit in the process. Um, uh, the reason they don't do it is by and large that the planning scheme makes it all too hard. Um, the second question you raised is, well, what about the 90% who don't work in the very centre of the, of the city? A couple of observations. One is, we're not just talking about the CBD, we're also talking about the 10Ks around it. Um, uh, and that is a very large percentage of the total jobs, certainly in Melbourne and Sydney. Uh, and as you saw, also an extremely large percentage, more than half of the additional jobs being created. So the question is not, where are the jobs we've got already? The question is, as these cities grow, where is the marginal job being created? And the answer is overwhelmingly the marginal job is being created at the centre. That is the world we now live in. Yeah, it's different from the world we lived in 30 or 40 years ago, in which there was much more in the way of manufacturing on the edge and much more in the way of indeed service industries that were well distributed. Today, an increasing number of those service industries are in the centre and that's the world um, that we're in. And then the question you ask is, you know, does higher land tax mean that you're going to be forced out of your house um, and, uh, and that um, the, the temptation to sell to the rapacious developer um, will just be so overwhelming that you uh, feel compelled to sell? A couple of observations. One is, um, one of the issues we are seeing emerge in Australia uh, is that by and large grandparents would like to live where their grandkids are, therefore by definition they need to live more or less where their kids live. Their kids can only afford to buy on the edge. Their grandparents, of course, bought in the middle 30, 40 years ago when they could afford to. Their kids can't afford to do that. The grandparents maybe might move out to the edge, but essentially we're seeing very little in the way of medium density built on the edge. So the younger generation winds up living on the edge. The grandparents can't move out there. Um, the younger generation can't move in. Uh, and we wind up with even with a geographic uh, generational divide as well as an economic divide. Uh, and um, we're also seeing the issue emerge in Australia um, as we're seeing people live for longer. Um, uh, used to be that they basically, you know, made it to 70 and they died in the house that they'd grown up in and they hadn't been retired for that long. Of course, nowadays we have a material period of retire active retirement between, say, 65 and 75 when people are often, maybe 80 when people are living in the house that they grew up in, or sorry, that they, that they had their family in, and then often wanting to move into something smaller um, because they just can't maintain anything that large anymore, physically. Um, but of course they're suddenly discovering that there aren't places that they can move into in the precise neighbourhood they live in. And of course at the age of 80 they are very keen on staying in the precise neighbourhood they have lived in for the last 30 or 40 years. That's an entirely human thing to want. Uh, and so my suggestion would be the kind of things I'm talking about here are the kind of things that many older people may wind up discovering they really, really want in time. Uh, and in terms of, of land taxes, I hear you. 
um, a couple of things uh, that I would respond. Firstly, um, you can run home equity release schemes in which you basically allow people to capitalise it against the value of the house. Because inherently the level of a tax is not that large relative to the value of the property, because you usually get some kind of capital price growth in the property over the long run, you can afford to let people capitalise for a very, very, very long time, i.e. 30 years, and they will still wind up owning 80 or 90% of the value of their house. It's not like a normal reverse mortgage where you're borrowing 15 or 20% of the value of the house and then of course it compound interest kind of it all goes to custard pretty quickly. Because the amount you're borrowing is inherently quite small as a value of the, as a percentage of the property, um, you can afford to let people capitalise it for a long time. So um, we've suggested in an Australian context you can guarantee people that the government will never take more than 20% of the value of the house and the reason governments can afford to do that is that almost no one's ever going to qualify to, to have capitalised that much. Um, and that means that people can stay in their houses, but the very substantial windfall that certainly Australian households got, anyone who owned their house before about 2000, um, wound up doing incredibly well. Uh, and that's a generation, and this is work that we talked about in our Wealth of Generations report, maybe it's different in New Zealand, but certainly in Australia, that generation has done astonishingly well out of a combination of the housing market and a series of government tax and welfare choices. Uh, and if they wind up paying a wee bit more tax or accurate, more accurately, if they wind up leaving a little bit less in the way of an estate for their children, you know, that strikes me as unfortunate, but um, you know, completely fair enough in the scheme of things. Can, can I ask a question? It's coming through. Um, when you did the, the housing we choose, I think the, the methodology is, is you force people to choose one of two options. So I'll do that to you if, if I can, if, you may, if I may. Um, I know the answer is, you'd like to say is both, up or out? So, so city development, do, do, should we expand the urban uh, footprint or should we allow more intensification and, and height in, in the suburbs? Obviously we need to do both, but if you were forced to choose one or the other, which, which would you choose? Yeah. Look, if I was really forced to choose, um, I'd be looking at what I could do in the suburbs. But as I hope I've been trying to describe in this, this is not necessarily about, you know, 20-storey towers in the middle of Auckland. Indeed, 20-storey towers in the middle of Auckland, even if you went down that road, won't actually accommodate that many people because the CBD of Auckland is just not that big. Um, it's not even necessarily about five-storey towers in the suburbs. Um, uh, when you've got lots and lots of detached dwellings, often on one-eighth one of an acre blocks, um, in uh, New Zealand, as in Australia, designed that way because of... Um, uh, the need to deal with um, sewage um, before there were sewage systems, um, you can take a one-eighth acre block and chop it into six, you know, at most two-storey townhouses without that much difficulty. Um, uh, you will wind up losing quite a lot of the garden. Uh, on the other hand, most of these middle suburbs actually have quite a lot of pocket parks and open space. Um, and um, you can then get um, really quite high population densities with relatively low rise. I think one of the problems is that this debate immediately goes from, well, that means I'm going to have a 10-storey thing next to me, which the answer is, well, look, no, you might well have a two-storey thing next to you and it might well go pretty close to the boundary, but, um, you know, in the scheme of things, that's probably not too bad. Um, uh, and you will get an enormous shift in density if you do that because, of course, the physical land area of those middle suburbs is huge. Um, so this is not about, you know, 10 storeys everywhere. 
Um, it's worth remembering that you know Paris is a really big city by global standards, uh, and you know as far as the eye can see, there is nothing higher than four stories, apart from Sacre Coeur and the Eiffel Tower um, and Notre Dame Cathedral. Um, and apart from that, it's four stories as far as the eye can see, and an incredibly dense city. Um, so I think, uh, at the risk of slightly cheating, uh, and not. Uh, it's, it's kind of, well, not quite either. It's about densification, but it's about looking long and hard at these middle rings and seeing what we can do about them. And part of that is about the brownfields development, part of it is about the small-scale subdivision, part of it is about um, the transport corridors, where obviously along major roads, major train lines, you can often afford to go materially higher than two or three storeys. Next. Thank you. Hi, just one, one more little thing. Um, uh, in relation to the um, wealth that you mentioned um, and, and the taxation of land, is the, uh, the next fix, if you like, the um, super increase of, of tax on land in CBDs to drive some of this development outside? Because all the cost of getting people to CBDs will, uh, could, then be, could then be accounted for mm. because CBD wouldn't be paying its way at the moment. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, in general, you will maximise prosperity if you let economic water flow to wherever it wants to flow. If economic water is prepared to flow to the centre of cities despite the fact the rents are really high, there's obviously something going on. For whatever reason, people tend to be more productive there because they, as I've suggested, interact with more people. So I wouldn't be suggesting that we want government policy that tries to prevent that artificially from happening. Now, that said, there's an externality to transport. Um, bottom line is everybody winds up paying for it, and the people that benefit from it are the people who wind up using it, uh, particularly who come to the centre of cities uh, and the businesses that they work for. So is it fair enough to say that some of that cost should be recovered from those people? Well, absolutely yes. Um, uh, and uh, you know, when you look at who uses um, public transport, certainly to the centre of cities in peak hour in Australian cities, the answer is, you know, be blunt, overwhelmingly white-collar middle-class workers who can frankly afford to pay, and at the moment we don't charge them anything like the real cost. Um, and there's a lot to be said for charging the real cost of transport, um, both um, on public transport and in terms of road transport, including the congestion cost. In other words, very deliberately having materially higher prices at peak hour relative to all other times. Um, and indeed, that's how you might be able to get away with this politically. You say, good news, we're dropping the cost of public transport and indeed roads, uh, to the extent you've got toll roads, um, you know, for 20 hours of the day, bad news for four hours of the day, they're going to go up. Um, uh, but it will lead to a better use of those resources. Um, so I think that when you're genuinely trying to price something which is otherwise being unpriced like that, you know, that, that can lead to a perfectly economically efficient outcome. Uh, if you wind up doing it because you're trying to drive people away, from what is otherwise an economically efficient outcome, you know, all you're doing is making the country poorer than it would otherwise be. So, so tax, if I've got it right, tax the, the, um, the way you into the work through the transport or the, the water or whatever the infrastructure cost is, but make sure the water, the economic flow is good into the city. Yeah, that's right. Um, and in particular, that means two things. One is um, you probably want to price the individual trips higher than you do, kind of classic user pays stuff, and that's the kind of easiest way of making sure that the, alloc you know, that the cost is being allocated to the people who are using it. 
Um, to the extent that for either politically or otherwise you can't get away with that, you might want some kind of surcharge on your CBD businesses, quite probably on property. Victoria did that when they built the Metro Loop in Melbourne. There was essentially a surcharge on the CBD businesses. They said, look, you guys are the people who are going to benefit most from it. You guys are going to pay for it. Um, and, and you know you can certainly justify that on the basis that there is an externality. Those businesses are benefiting from that transport link. Indeed, they're the dominant beneficiaries. And in that case, it makes sense to charge them for it. And our last Excuse me. Um, perhaps you've uh, half answered this, but I'll ask you anyway. Um, it seems to me that you know, there's a limit to the intensification of the centre unless you want to end up living somewhere like Hong Kong. So um, is there also a role for forces in terms of um, you know, taxation or rates, instruments or whatever, to try and encourage businesses to move against that flow of water and to be uh, located in outer parts of the city or even in the regions. Yeah. But my suggestion would be that those kind of tax incentives wind up just destroying value. They make us less prosperous overall. Um, so uh, I can't see why we might want to do that. To the extent that the congestion no longer makes sense, people will make their own decisions. It's not government's business to make those decisions, I would suggest. That said, one thing I'd like to stress is um, we think of Melbourne and Auckland as a pretty similar um, uh, uh, density uh, in many places. Um, Melbourne is about half as dense as Los Angeles. Um, we can see these cities become enormously larger than they are at the moment with no material interest, increase in their geographic boundaries. Um, as I said, those middle rings are uh, very, very large areas of land and it is very easy to see the, the density of those areas increasing by multiples, by you know, two, three, or four. Um, you know, at the point that Auckland is a city of eight million people, maybe it will start to hit the kind of problems you're talking about. My guess is, even with very rapid population growth we're seeing at the moment, Auckland's not going to be a city of eight million people for a very, very, very long time. Um, and so, you know, kind of deal with that problem when we get there. Well, thank you very much. That's the uh, we'll wrap up our Q&A session. And I'd now like to introduce Laurie Kubiak up to the stage, uh, the Chief Executive of NZIR, for a vote of thanks. Thank you very much, Chris. Um, I am here from NZIER, the New Zealand Institute of Economic Research. You know, we're the premier centre in New Zealand for practical economics, applied economics. And so it's, a, it's very gratifying for me to be able to um, offer a hand across the Tasman to one of our great Australian co colleagues and bring him here and work him like an absolute dog for the three days that he, <laughs> that he spends in our great nation. You know, it, it really is a wonderful pleasure and he's be, he, he arrived this morning to ex ex experience the first day of the Auckland Spring. I hope he's uh, <laughs> taken some fond memories of that home with him and um, he spent some time t today with what he persists in referring to as the state government of Auckland. So I hope that was a pleasure and an enlightenment as well. Um, what a ride that was, economic history, densification, um, social cohesion, so many important issues were touched on, on in Professor Grattan's uh, presentation there that it's uh, difficult know, to know what to single out for particular praise. So I think the one that I would single out, single out that I found particularly important and certainly something that I will be devoting a great deal of attention to after this evening is the crucial importance of those middle rings 
and the crucial importance of devoting as much intelligence to the way that you manage and develop those rings as possible. I mean, all, 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 so many of the points that Professor Grattan made seem to converge on that one point. And so I'm personally very grateful to you, John, for having really brought that, that home to me. Um, I'd like to recognize a number of people in, in the room. Uh, first of all, the people from Auckland Council, as I'm going to refer to it from now, and I think the, the state government of Auckland, um, for um, being our co-sponsors with this event in particular, uh, Chris Parker for his wonderful offices within the council and making all this happen. On the NZIER side, I'd also like to call out Dr. Curtin Lees, who's, um, who's trying to be unobtrusive um, at the back here, but he, he really is the only begetter of this evening. You know, it was his idea to, to bring, bring John over here, and he's been working at it for some time. So Curtin, you know, thank you very much for everything you've done to make this, this evening um, a, a, real, a real event. Um, to the venue staff, thank you. It's been wonderful, wonderful venue. Uh, the view isn't what it was perhaps when we arrived, but uh, it's turning into a lovely autumn spring evening. Um, and thank you for the supplies of, of, uh, of beverages and food uh, that we, we so enjoyed that we, we arrived. Thank you to all of you for coming. You know, I hope you found that in, as enlightening as I have, and I hope that you take away a few things that you will reflect upon in the days to come. But above all, of course, thank you to Professor Daly for, um, for, for, for coming to talk to us and for, for giving us such a, such a wonderful, enlightening presentation. Um, I think it only remains, it remains for me for, to call upon the room to thank uh, Professor Daly in the accustomed room. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations, brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. 